a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You probably heard the rumors. I want to confirm they're true. We don't just dabble in wrong think. We revel in wrong think, which means we question every narrative. We look with a furrowed brow at every single authority and ask them, Oh, really? Are you sure about that? And yes, we uh, sometimes cause a little bit of frustration among those who are uh, in charge of this or that system trying to rule our lives. It's just kind of the way things go. At your service, though, I'm very happy that uh, that you could tune in today. I've got some fun stuff to share with you. I- I'm thinking back just because, uh, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, about a week away from Thanksgiving. And I think a lot of us wish we could have back the world that we knew before all the trauma started roughly four years ago. Got a great article here from Dr. Naomi Wolf talking about, first of all, talking about Thanksgiving gathering. It's an excerpt from her new book called Facing the Beast, Courage, Faith, and Resistance in a New Dark Age. But she talks about what it would take to reclaim our world after the trauma that we've seen in the last few years. She says, in November of 2022, I traveled to Florida to do research for a new book. I stayed in a hotel for almost a week in a modest, touristy town a few miles from the beach. Now, she says, we were able to be in Florida at that time because for the second year, we had not been invited to Thanksgiving celebrations with our relatives. Remember this stuff? Do you guys remember? Well, we can't have anybody for Christmas after all. You know, there's a disease out there somewhere. She says, two years in, I stopped hoping that we would be having Thanksgiving with relatives. And she says, my pain had scarred over into angry dismissiveness and anger at myself that I wanted so badly to rejoin my people, my nearest ones. But she says, I tried not to think about this at all. There was never a time where it didn't hurt. So for anyone else who may have forgotten, Florida and New York were at that time essentially different countries. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was giving press conferences, showcasing the fact that he had not closed down local businesses, that his economy was thriving. But New York Governor Kathy Hochul, on the other hand, was persevering with policies that shocked even some diehard lockdown militants. She sought to create quarantine camps, and when a judge objected and struck down her bid, she appealed. And she insisted on keeping schools and businesses compliant with disabling mRNA injection mandates and with forced COVID measures. So Naomi Wolf says, well, every day when I was in the hotel in the little friendly, whimsically tacky beach town, from the moment I opened my eyes till the moment I settled in my cool hotel sheets, my heart exulted with indescribable happiness. And I like the example she uses here. You know those dreams in which a loved one who is dead appears to you in full youth and health and vigor, and you say to that person in your dream with tears of joy streaming down your cheeks, oh my goodness, you're not dead. But then you wake up, and that person is still dead. Well, she says it was that dream, but it was for a nation. In Florida, she says, I was in a delirium of happiness mixed with nostalgia, mixed with grief, because it felt like America. And she says, that's the way it felt, the way I remember America to have felt pre-2020. 
The malls, the cookie-cutter townhouse developments, the chain stores, the auto body shops, churches, and sports bars were the same as they were anywhere in the country, but the people were entirely different. The culture was entirely different. She says, everywhere I went, I saw people who were proud and confident and relaxed. And it didn't matter who they were or where they'd come from. This was a universal birthright, it seemed, in that part of America. The very young bartender slash busboy who'd recently immigrated from Thailand was proud, confident, relaxed. The multi-generational family reunion groups, families who'd lived for generations in the region, were proud, confident, confident rather, and relaxed. The suburban moms walking to their vans in the mall parking lot, proud, confident, and relaxed. My Uber driver, a former special operator whose wife had opened a Filipino food truck in the downtown area, was also proud, confident, and relaxed. The pretty 40-something bartender with one side of her head shaved and a flowering vine tattooed down one arm who showed me pictures of her two adult sons, one, she explained, who had autism, the young men standing on either side of their mom, hugging her tight, all of them grinning. Yes, she too was proud confident, and relaxed. And Naomi Wolf says, and so on, African-American, Caucasian, Latino, whatever, male, female, aged and young, there was a quality that united everyone. And there was this big colorful sign, she says, a piece of public art in the little green park flanking the mall. People stood in front of it to take photos for Instagram. The sign read, you are deeply loved. And she says, once when I was walking back to my, my hotel, I passed a group of people, three or four of them, with their arms around each other, heads bowed in a huddle. Colleagues, friends, a family. She says, I realized they were unselfconsciously, publicly praying. The pride in themselves and the calm sense of security of people everywhere around me simply being who they were and gladly, openly showing others who they were really struck me. In fact, she says, I remember this quality from the before era as being generally true of Americans. It was this once American quality that had formerly so fascinated the rest of the world, the broken, fearful, inhibited rest of the world. Now, whether it was the admiration in ravaged 1950s Europe of the proud, relaxed gunslinger John Wayne or the French marveling in the 1960s at the unabashedly goofy Jerry Lewis or the appreciation worldwide in the 1970s of beat poet Allen Ginsberg sharing his wild free verse with rapt college audiences while seated on a meditation pillow. Americans were once magnetically attracted, attractive rather, because we were once so proud of ourselves, our speech, our liberties, in a nation in which our individuality was protected by an intact constitution. We were relaxed compared to other peoples because, she says, our rights were inviolable. Sorry, I'm having a little pang of nostalgia as I'm reading this, but she's right. The lure of America wasn't that the streets were paved with gold or that you could make a fortune in a generation, though that was attractive, no doubt, to many. The true magnetism of Americans was that we acted like free people. It was that charismatic charismatic quality that people had still in Florida and that had been lost dramatically in some cases and imperceptibly in others in the lockdown and mandate states. Naomi Wolf says, I didn't realize how bad it felt in New York state by state, or I'm sorry, New York state day by day, till I left the state. Because people in Florida felt relaxed and proud and confident because they'd never been held indoors against their will, told where to stand, stripped of their holidays, or forced into submitting to poisonous, unchosen injections. There was a rhythm to social life still there. 
People from all walks of life chatted away with one another. The lady who wrapped up the sandals I bought chatted away with me. She chatted with all who came in. The chiropractor I visited chatted away with his customers. The salad shop workers chatted with the people who dropped off the bagels. The lady moving her grocery cart uh, cart around me made a jolly, friendly remark. And Naomi Wolf says, all of this complexity took place in a peaceful, almost measurable rhythm. So when social scientists have done stop-motion videos of people moving around a city intersection, they prove that humans move in a perceptible rhythm. By the same token, newborns sync their breathing and nervous systems with their moms and vice versa. Happy couples' respiration and even heartbeats align when they sit near one another. Whole communities unconsciously align with one another in creating complex rhythms. And she said, I'd been feeling strongly that something was discordant, jarring in how we lockdown states were relating to each other as 2022 was drawing to a close. The contrast with Florida showed me what it is. We had our community rhythms broken off, our human music silenced. Then, as we started up our lives again, under our interactions became tentative, awkward, erratic. Do we chat with the uh, checkout girl? Do we not? As she's just trying to breathe behind her mask? Did she get out of the habit of chatting, if unmasked now? Do we drop in on a friend? Do we have to Zoom now forever? Do we shake hands? Hug? Not hug? Not shake hands? Do we never again embrace? Just kiss? Just stop by? You see her point? It was all smashed to smithereens. But she talks about how in Florida, she saw the richness of those little social moments that these were people who hadn't lost two years of church, knitting clubs, rotary, synagogue, playdates, ballroom dancing, after work happy hours, bowling, fishing, brunch, poker games, christenings, bar mitzvahs. She says it was lovely. It was heavenly. If you want the kingdom of heaven, she says, it turns out that other people simply, simply acting decently to one another are in fact the kingdom of heaven. In fact, she says, I think Jesus did try to tell us that. So here's the question for you. How many Thanksgivings do you have left? 20? 60? 2? 1? None of us knows. But the point here is the Dr. Walensky's of the world, the Dr. Fauci's, the presidents, the governors, the people who have no authority over you decided without your consent that they knew better than you what was important in your life and they decided to take away forever two of your Thanksgivings. And you will never get those back. I've got a link to Naomi Wolf's article in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Highly recommended reading. I think she's tapped into something that it's very easy to forget, and that's what uh, what normal felt like. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, I want to thank you for tuning in. By the way, I want to issue a very special invitation. If you haven't checked it out yet, there is a daily feature that I do called Hide in Plain Sight. And this is a very non-political, two-minute-long truth bomb of uh, different practices, purposes, principles, basically little nuggets of, of wisdom that are hiding right there in plain sight. Things we tend to overlook because we have other shiny, loud, you know, attention-grabbing things around us. It's free of charge. It's on a substack. Go to hide, H-Y-D-E, in plain sight, just like you would spell it, dot substack.com. 
I hope you find it worthwhile. Maybe consider uh, becoming a, a subscriber. You have that option. All right. Are you a traditionalist? I think most of us are a traditionalist of some sort. But if you are, this you know. You stand out like a sore thumb. Cadence McManaman, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, talks about the five types of traditionalist. I thought this was interesting just because, you know, I, I yeah, I, I'm probably a traditionalist. There's traditional things I really like. I like blued steel and walnut on a gun, you know. Okay, but there, I didn't realize how many different types there were. She says, all traditionalists share a few hallmark traits, and among them are traditional morals, a burning desire for government reform, or restriction, as the case may be. I want, to, I want government tied down. A strong distaste for progressive societal values. Now, she says, as with any sect, though, sub-stereotypes exist. So in traditionalist circles, there are five types of people. Not a single traditionalist doesn't fit into one of these boxes. Or at least that's how it seems. So could it be possible that sticking everyone into a box doesn't capture the whole person? Yeah. That's a possibility. But what are these types? How does each stand out as unique? Well, here's how she breaks it down. Number one is the hipster traditionalist. Now, the hipster traditionalist takes the most pride in his animoia. That's nostalgia for a time long gone. Often he feels he's been born in the wrong century, spends much of his time at home, and frequently isn't out in public. When he does wander outside the house, he usually sports thick-rimmed glasses and gazes pensively out of a coffee shop window. He might wear his favorite button-down vest, don a newsboy cap, and carry his well-thumbed G.K. Chesterton book along with him. Okay, that's, that's definitely given us a picture. With this, the hipster traditionalist has a taste for the finer things in life, like aged wine and a good pipe. Don't mistake his contemplative manner for a wandering soul, though. He hides a strong moral compass under that tweed coat, as well as a cutthroat encyclopedic memory for anything involving J.R.R. Tolkien. Ha! Interesting. Number two is the homeschooling traditionalist. Now, this is perhaps the easiest to identify because she's followed by a posse of well-behaved children. At least four accompany her out and about to farmers markets and libraries during regular school hours. Now, contrary to popular opinion, these children are pursuing their education, perhaps in better ways than their public school counterparts. Often, both mother and child are wearing denim skirts, calico dresses, overalls, work boots. Most will carry market bags, books, and jackknives, too. She's commonly told by surprised passers-by how mature and well-behaved her children are. She'll reply with a deceptively demure smile, Thank you. They're homeschooled. Ah, lacking that socialization, I see. All right, number three. The religious traditionalist. Now, the religious traditionalist is a little harder to spot in a public crowd. Cadence McManaman says, It's easiest to find this type in churches and church-related events, although if we pay close attention, we can identify them elsewhere. Keep an eye out for the glint of a miraculous metal necklace, Brown's scapular cord, or the occasional Bible-quoting T-shirt. Many have an affinity for swing dancing, and they often intermix with the homeschooling traditionalists. Now, religious traditionalists, too, have a unique appreciation for good, clean fun, Shakespeare, and 1950s fashion. You will never see a better-dressed lady than a Catholic swing dancer. Behind their love of the vintage aesthetic, they harbor spines of steel. They know their values inside and out. They're not intimidated by any onslaught of progressivism. Next, number four, we have the natural traditionalist. Natural traditionalists might surprise us the most since their views and values 
might seem to contrast with their rugged appearance. So, natural traditionalist men usually have beards or wear button-up flannels or car horts. Car hearts, rather. Women might have uh, uncut hair or wear loose bohemian clothing, or she might pull out a miniature stash of essential oils from her canvas hemp bag. Frequently, natural traditionalists like to discuss anything to do with gardening. They have a deep respect for the earth and natural environment and take every opportunity to connect with their ancestral roots. All right, last but not least, number five is the political traditionalist. Now, many of the other traditionalist types have strong political views, but the political traditionalist identifies himself most strongly as a governmental expert. So he might wear a MAGA hat, and he'll usually have some form of patriotic emblems among his personal attire. He might begin a discussion with why monarchy is a truly great political system. He also has extensive knowledge of pre-Civil War presidencies, Soviet Russia, and World War II. His trivia capability is quite a wonder to behold, and conservative yard signs and bumper stickers are a staple. Along with boldly proclaimed political principles, these traditionalists deeply value their family and community. Perhaps their zeal for government is born from their devotion to their children and grandchildren, for they desire to build a better world for the next generations. Now, Cadence McManaman says, truly, sometimes it's just nice to spot the signs of a fellow traditionalist. Our numbers are far greater than most people know, and they continue to expand. We might trade a nod in the coffee shop or lend a hand to each other at the farmer's market. After all, a kindred spirit might just be a pew away. But while these five types might ring true in some ways, she says looks can be deceptive. So whether we fit into these boxes or not, let's wear our stereotype badges with honor. We can let our lives and values speak for themselves. After all, a tree is known by the fruit it bears. And so she asks, what fruit are we bearing? Cadence McManaman says, I see the fruits of joy, wisdom, love, kindness, and truth every day in traditionalism. So she says, let's share that with the world, no matter what they call us. Don't worry what the left is labeling us. Don't fret over being that weird homeschool family, the weird church guy, or whatever else. We know who we are. We know what we believe. This was kind of fun, only from you know, if only from the standpoint of looking at the different uh, stereotypical traditionalists out there. And frankly, I'm really not sure where where I would fit into that. Definitely, I got the beard, wear a little bit of button up flannel from time to time, but I don't know if I'm the nat- natural traditionalist. Definitely got a religious tradition that uh, that I feel is important. Uh, we've homeschooled our kids, so that the hipster one. Okay, my glasses, yes. My, gla- my reading glasses are definitely you know, very hipster looking. I've had people tell me that. I thought it was a compliment, but apparently, who knows? I do like this advice, though, that Cadence McManaman gives, and that is be comfortable. Whatever you are, embrace it, lean into it, and when people are calling names or people are applying labels, well, you look like one of those. Let them. If you own it, they're, they're not hurting you. Right? They're just, well, I think this. I'm going to apply a label, and because I believe in word magic, if I say you're this, you have to be that. That's not how it works. But the idea that uh, you can be a proud, albeit humble, you know, individual who, who thrives on individuality, you don't have to fit in with everybody else. In fact, if I could be so bold, one of the biggest problems we have right now in our society is too many people want to be a clone. 
well, I just want to fit in. I don't want to draw attention to myself. And, and unfortunately, you give up so much of your own autonomy by choosing to, to fit in at all costs. Look, I'm not going to pretend like it's, it's easy to stand out or it's easy to be, you know, a little bit uh, off from what the crowd is doing. But I would ask you to consider how many times is the crowd dead wrong in what it's trying to accomplish? I think the answer is more often than not. Given the choice of following the crowd over the cliff or the one sane person who is going the opposite direction, you know, would we be able to tell who is who? I'm just asking. I've got a link to this article in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for November 15th. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I think it was uh, Dr. Gary North years ago who came up with uh, the idea that uh, there is an ironclad rule of bureaucracy. And I'm paraphrasing this, so I'm kind of doing this from memory. But as I recall, the unavoidable ironclad rule of of bureaucracy is that eventually some bureaucrat will take his or her authority to some ridiculous end that fully illustrates their incompetence. Now, the really crazy thing about this is At that point, the bureaucracy doesn't fix itself. Instead, it doubles down and uh, it just it tries to come up with rules and reasons for why it has to be so inflexible. And you can see this in many different ways. I'm going to share an example with you out of New Hampshire. This is from Patrick Carroll at the Foundation for Economic Education. And he's writing about a bakery that was ordered to remove a mural because it depicts pastries. And the point here is that when even the smallest details regarding a property fall under the purview of government, you're going to get a society of busybodies. So the story is on the morning of June 14th, 2022, a new mural was unveiled above the entrance to Levitt's Country Bakery in the small town of Conway, New Hampshire. Well, it's about 10,000 population. It was inspired by the nearby White Mountains. And the mural features a mountain range of pastries. Now, the whimsical idea and style was a perfect fit for the small-town bakery, certainly a step up from the drab wooden facade that preceded it. The mural was painted by three local high school students as a project for their art class, and the unveiling was attended by many students and community members, including the local press. Olivia Benish is the art teacher who oversaw the project. She said, There were a lot of late afternoons. I wanted to give my top students a project, and they really did a great job. Now, the project took about 80 hours for students to complete, which they put in over the span of five weeks. This is a pretty small building. I'm looking at the building or the picture of the building. I mean, we're not talking about a great big, you know, three story, you know, block sized building. This is just a little building. 80 hours, five weeks of work. Uh, One of the artists said, I've never done such a big piece of art before. So it's pretty exciting. And, of course, the owner, Sean Young, was pleased with the mural and especially proud he was able to partner with the high school on the project. The bakery owner said, we thought it would be a fun project for the kids and good for the community. Hopefully this will be an annual project as we have other sides to the building. Now, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story. 
A week later, a town official showed up to the bakery and informed the owner that the mural violated local zoning ordinances, which place a limit on the allowable size of store signs. According to the mural, Levitt's building can't have a sign more than 22 square feet. The mural being 91 square feet far exceeds that, so according to officials, the mural must come down. Now, it's also worth noting that Conway has many murals, all of which the town allows. So what's so different about this one? Well, because according to officials, this mural counts as a sign because it depicts the kinds of things the store sells, namely pastries. So, in other words, if the, if the mural had depicted real mountains or anything else for that matter, there would be no problem. But I guess they consider it advertising. Oh, that looks like pastries. Uh, therefore, it's a sign, not a, not a mural. Now, this would also be no problem if the same mural was displayed somewhere else. Town officials told the owner of the bakery, Mr. Young, if he moved the mural to the farm stand next to the bakery, which is on the same lot, well, then it could stay up because the farm stand doesn't sell baked goods. Now, despite immense public backlash, the town has put its foot down and they've insisted the mural must be removed or changed. Near the end of last year, they actually threatened Young with enforcement proceedings, saying if you don't remove or paint over the sign, you will face criminal charges and fines of $275 per day. Now, thankfully, Young has chosen, rather than to acquiesce, to fight back. Now, on January 31st of this year, he teamed up with the Institute for Justice to file a federal lawsuit against the town, arguing that the zoning ordinance violates his first, cover, his first Amendment rights. In Institute for Justice uh, senior attorney Rob Frommer says, government bureaucrats don't get to play art critic and decide what is and isn't art. Levitz could legally have a mural the same exact size if it didn't show any items they sell. That makes no sense and violates the First Amendment. Now, the bakery owner, Mr. Young, said, I couldn't believe the town was going after me for giving high school students a way to express their artistic passions and contribute something fun and delightful to the community. He said, this mural isn't hurting anyone. If anything, it's brought the community together, which is a good point, right? This wasn't like some George Floyd mural. Oh, well, that's, uh, oh, that's sacred. We wouldn't touch that. We wouldn't encourage you to do anything. Yeah, exactly. So this makes a pretty interesting case against zoning laws. And Patrick Carroll says what's, unre- or what's remarkable about the zoning law at the center of this story is exactly how unremarkable it is. There are thousands of laws just like this across the country, and they've become so commonplace that we rarely even think about them. Only when a story like this comes along do we even consider that, well, maybe that is a tad intrusive. But Patrick Carroll reminds us, you know, it wasn't always this way. When zoning laws were first introduced around the beginning of the 20th century, they were hotly debated. Over time, however, people gradually gave up fighting them, and now we mostly take them for granted. Not only have zoning laws faced less opposition over time, but they've also become far more stringent. Municipal and county ordinances now regularly include restrictions of, like how tall you can build, how densely you can build, how far back from the street your building must be, what the property can be used for, even very specific rules like what size of signs you can have, as this story illustrates. So what started as you can't build a skyscraper there soon became you can't build an apartment there if it doesn't have at least 20 parking spaces. And the main argument in favor of these laws is, well, they help preserve the character of the community. 
I guess the reasoning is something like this. Without these laws, you'd have brothels next to schools and lumber mills next to residential neighborhoods. Obnoxious signs would be everywhere. Oh, you get the picture. Now, proponents also argue that these laws help maintain property values. I believe stabilize is the euphemism they use. After all, if the place across the street's allowed to be trashy, well, that's sure to have a negative impact on the value of your home. But the primary argument against zoning laws revolves around property rights, though in court, it's often more effective to argue the First Amendment angle, as the Institute for Justice is doing in this case. So in short, people should be allowed to do as they wish with their own property. Government control violates your liberty as a property owner and is thus unethical. Now, Patrick Carroll says in response to the apprehension that widely incongruous land uses might be juxtaposed like brothels and schools, opponents of zoning laws would argue that these fears are largely overblown because such uses would make little practical sense anyways. Further, in the few cases where such problems might arise, voluntary arrangements such as restrictive covenants could easily prevent unwanted developments. Similar arrangements could likely could likewise be made to address other issues like setbacks and signs. Now, as for the argument that zoning laws are needed to maintain property values, well, detractors simply argue that's not an ethically legitimate reason to control someone else's property. By the way, I would be one of those arguing against. You know, the we need zoning laws to maintain property values. Are you selling your home right now? Well, no. Then shut up. Unless you're selling it, this this is a non-issue. You're just you're asking for enforcement of, of something that might happen when you decide to sell your home. But if you're not actively selling it, come on. Property owners worried about losing equity can propose voluntary agreements with developers, but Patrick Carroll says they shouldn't get to dictate what someone else does on their land. Should a company be allowed to cripple their competitor's business with burdensome land use regulations on the ground that the competitor was hurting the value of their business? Then comes the question, are zoning laws constitutional? Now, that may seem like a settled issue today, but it was not settled in the early 20th century. One of the main constitutional arguments against zoning laws is that they violate the 14th Amendment, specifically the Due Process Clause. As per the 14th Amendment, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the argument is that when the government enacts a zoning ordinance, it is in effect depriving a property owner of their property rights and liberty without due process, because it's restricting what they can do on their land. Now, the constitutional debate reached a climax in the 1926 landmark Supreme, case, Supreme Court case, Euclid versus Ambler. In that case, the Supreme Court ruled that zoning laws were constitutional because they were a form of nuisance control and therefore a valid exercise of police power. Through various legal challenges, such as the First Amendment challenges, though they continue to be mounted against specific zoning laws to this day, the constitutionality of zoning laws has largely been conceded, and as one would expect, zoning laws became much more prevalent in the wake of this ruling. Now, Patrick Carroll says, look, with the, pra the practical consequences of zoning laws are debatable. It's hard to dispute that they've caused at least a great deal of conflict and strife. He's got a point here. Every new development seems to be a battle. The tiniest minutiae regarding land uses have been litigated to death in city halls and courts across the country. His point is, surely we have better things to do than this. He quotes Tacitus, the more corrupt the state, the more numerous its laws. Wow, if that is true, 
What does that say about the, the system under which we are living right now? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. This is our final segment today. Got a couple fine articles I would like to share with you. In fact, I want to start with one. This is actually the article of the day, and this is courtesy of Jeffrey Tucker at the Brownstone Institute. And I'm, I'm so happy to share this one just because I feel such a sense of vindication. It's titled, The Declaration That Wasn't Supposed to Happen. And thinking back, it has been, when was it? October 2020. It's been three years. How interesting. He says, it's been a continuing mystery for three years, at least to me, but many others too. In October 2020, in the midst of a genuine crisis, three scientists made a very short statement of highly public health wisdom. A summary of what everyone in the profession, apart from a few oddballs, believed just a year earlier. The astonishing frenzy of denunciation following that document's release, Jeffrey says, was on a level I've never seen before, reaching to the highest levels of government and flowing through the whole of media and tech. It was mind-boggling. Now, he's talking about the Great Barrington Declaration. For proof that nothing in the document was particularly radical, he says, look no further than the March 2, 2020 letter from Yale University signed by 800 top professionals. That letter warned against quarantines, lockdowns, closures, and travel restrictions. It said extreme measures can undermine public trust, have large societal costs, and importantly, disproportionately affect the most vulnerable segments in our communities. Now, that document appeared only two weeks before the lockdowns announced by the Trump administration. That was the period of the Great, of the, of the great Amnesia. The conventional wisdom turned on a dime toward full backing of regime priorities, a shift more extreme and mind-boggling than anything in dystopian fiction. Seven months later, October of 2020, the Great Barrington Declaration said something very similar to the Yale document. It was a summary statement concerning what governments and society should and should not do during pandemics. They should seek to allow everyone to live as normally as possible in order to avoid guaranteed damage from coerced disruptions. And the vulnerable population, those who would experience medically significant impacts from exposure, should be protected from exposure insofar as doing so is consistent with human rights and choice. Wow, that's scary. It's really not. But Jeffrey Tucker says, look, it was nothing particularly novel, much less radical. In fact, it was accepted wisdom the year before and for the previous 100 years before that. But he says the difference this time, however, is that the statement was released during the wildest, most destructive science experiment in modern times. The existing policy of lockdowns was utter wreckage of business, schools, churches, civic life and freedom itself. Masks were being forced on the whole population, including children. Governments were attempting a regime of test, track, trace, and isolate as if there were ever any hope of containing a respiratory pathogen with a zoonotic reservoir. The carnage was everywhere already and obvious from a look at every downtown of every city in the U.S. Stores were boarded up. The streets were mostly empty. 
unless you count the protests. The professional class was hunkered down, binging on streaming and gaming services, while the working class was hustling everywhere to deliver groceries to doorsteps. In short, insanity had broken out. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says several groups of doctors had already made strong statements about the goings-on, including Frontline Doctors Group on Capitol Hill and the brilliant Bakersfield Doctors, among many individuals. However, they were quickly shot down by major media and blasted for failing to support the great undertaking. He says even that was astonishing to watch. It didn't matter how exalted the reputations of the doctors or scientists were, they were all shot down more or less instantly as crazies and cranks. It was like living in a horror house of mirrors where nothing appears as it's supposed to. Now, he says, at the time, I chalked it all up to mass confusion, cultural amnesia, bad education, government overreach, media ignorance, or just some general tendency of humanity to go mad that I had not previously seen in my lifetime, but had only known from history books. And apparently several top epidemiologists felt the same way. Now, these were Martin Koldorf from Harvard, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, and Sunetra Gupta from Oxford. Together, they wrote a very short statement in hopes of bringing public officials and common people back to good sense and rationality. We had the idea of putting it online and inviting others to sign. We were racing against time because there were several interviews coming up. Lucio Severio Eastman, now with Brownstone, skipped a night's sleep to create the website. And the blowback began within hours. This is the crazy part. It was really something to behold. Twitter accounts came out of nowhere to smear the document and its producers and the institution that hosted the event where the scientists explained their thinking. The calumnies and attacks were coming in so quickly that it was impossible to respond. The website itself was subject to open and admitted sabotage with fake names. That required some fast patches and new levels of security. It was a storm of frenzy, the likes of which I had never seen. He says it's one thing to object to a point of view, but this was next level. The hit pieces were pouring out of huge venues, almost as if they had been ordered from the top. Now, of course, much later, he says, we found out that they had, in fact, been ordered. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, called for a quick and devastating takedown of the document. Now, when that revelation came out, Jeffrey Tucker says, that didn't make much sense to me. I get that this view has become what seemed to be a minority view, but how do you take down the public health wisdom of a 100 years? The Great Barrington Declaration was not the outlying position. The lockdowns were the radical move that never had a scientific justification. They were just imposed as if they were normal, even though everyone knew they were not. Now, lately, he says we've been flooded with more information that starts to make sense of this puzzle. As Rajiv Venkaya had told me the previous April, the whole point of the lockdowns was to wait for the vaccine. And Jeffrey Tucker says, frankly, I didn't believe him at the time. But I should have. After all, it was he who had invented the idea of lockdowns, worked for the Gates Foundation as head of its vaccine advisory, and then moved to a vaccine company thereafter. If anyone knew the real plan, it was he. In the meantime, we now know that there was being built a vast censorship machinery involving the federal government. Outposts as universities such as Stanford uh, and, and Johns Hopkins, tech companies and media embeds in all important outlets. It was not only being built but being deployed in order to craft the public mind in ways that could maintain the spirit of fear and the reality of lockdowns until the magic inoculation arrived. Now, the whole plot sounds straight out of a bad Hollywood movie, but it was a plot being enacted in real life. 
And Jeffrey Tucker says, think here of the timing of the Great Barrington Declaration. It came out barely a month before the election, after which the plan from the top was to release the new vaccine, presumably after the sitting president was defeated. That way, the new president could get credit for the distribution stage and thus would the pandemic end. The underlying dynamic of the timing of the release of the Great Barrington Declaration, we had no clue that all this was going on, worked utterly to subvert the entire censorship regime. The perception, too, was that this great document would undermine vaccine acceptance. Now, at that point in the great plan, all focus was on molding the public mind toward mass jabbing. That meant cultivating among the population the appearance, the appearance rather, of expert unity. Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed, said the Great Barrington Declaration. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We all know that populations will eventually reach herd immunity, in other words, the point at which the rate of new infections is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. So our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. Further, the most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection while better protecting those who are at highest risk. Now, Jeffrey says, reading those words today, in light of what we now know, we can start to make sense of the sheer panic at the top. Natural infection and immunity? Can't talk about that. The end of the pandemic is not dependent upon the vaccine? Why, you can't say that either. Go back to normal for all populations without significant medical risk? Unsayable. In fact, he says, you need only reflect on the astounding barrage of vaccine propaganda that began immediately upon release. The attempt to mandate it on the whole population, and now the addition of the COVID jab to the childhood schedule, even though children are at near zero risk. This is all about product sales, as you can easily discern from the unrelenting ad video made by the new head of the, of the CDC. See, the problem with the Great Barrington Declaration wasn't that it was not true. It's that, unbeknownst to its authors, it flew in the face of one of the most funded and elaborate industrial plots in the history of governance. Just a few sentences sneaking through the wall of censorship they had carefully constructed was enough to threaten and dismantle the best laid plans. He says sometimes just telling the plain truth in well-timed ways is all it takes. I remember when that great Barrington Declaration came out. And I remember the media onslaught that ensued. But I'm very happy to hear that it was one of the key things that was a turning point in breaking up that government censorship and propaganda. This is The Brian Hyde Show.